A million times I ask you And then I ask you over Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. Back again today with Ian. We are going to make a sequel here. We have a sequel to our covers episode from just a couple of weeks back. It was definitely a lot of fun, obviously, doing the, the covers episode. And we've been we've been texting back and forth about it. And uh, we're going to keep this unstructured. Maybe over time, we'll have something thematic. I'd like to kind of go into the history of particular genres of music. And we can use this format as an entryway to have those conversations about certain artists or certain genres. But we're going to make this still pretty loose, just trying to surprise each other, I think is the goal here. I kicked it off last time. So Ian, would you like to kick it off? Yeah. So I guess for the first hint, it's a song that was later covered in the 90s that was really popular, especially like uh, David Lynch was a huge fan. And the original artist's uh, has a child that also was very successful in music for, for a brief time. The original artist, oh, that sounds like Sinatra, but I was thinking Blue Velvet. No, not Blue Velvet, is it? Nope. Uh, in Dreams? No. Is that a, there was no cover of that, was there? No. I don't know. I'm no. stuck. Okay. Uh, next clue. The um, This child of the original artist, their most favorite song, famous song uh, is also a cover. They cover Leonard Cohen. Whoa, I'm stuck. My all the Leonard. I'm, I'm thinking Hallelujah. Yep, Warm. it is Hallelujah. Okay, most fair. it's not. It's not Jeff Buckley. Isn't the cover you're talking about? Is it? No. Oh, let's say yeah, because I don't know if he had a famous f- f- parent. Well, he did have a famous parent. Well, some somewhat famous. Um, his father, Tim Buckley, who actually tragically died. I think he didn't even really get a chance to meet Jeff, and he wrote a song. Uh, called Song to the Siren. Hmm. And it was on a, his record, Star Sailor, which I think was maybe his second or third album. The other interesting fact about this is that it was featured on one of the last episodes of the uh, Monkees. Huh. Drew me loving to your isle And you sang Sail to me, sail to me, let me enfold you. Here I am, here I am, waiting to hold you. So, so that was Tim Buckley? Wow, I did not, first of all, did not know that song. I recognize the lyrics, but I definitely couldn't place the cover. I was trying to figure it out from listening to it. And the lyrics sound familiar, though, but I don't think I know the song. But also, I was very surprised to find out that Tim Buckley was uh, uh, Jeff Buckley's father, especially, you know, that he died before he knew Jeff and then Jeff died so young, too. Like, wow, that's a tragic yeah. a coincidence. Yeah, very weird. Um, yeah, set of coincidences, I would say. I don't know if I bucked the order by playing the original uh, prior to the cover there, but 
I know. I it was. You know what? I was going to say that the lyrics made me think of. Um, uh, is it this mortal coil? Yep. In, I think. By the way, I think it was used in Lost Highway. I believe uh, there's a scene where. Um, yeah, and that, yeah. Actually, I think. I think right. they may have actually used it. Yeah, I think you might be. He right tried right. it. He tried it before. He tried to license it before and didn't get it. And then I think and like got it for third time around. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, but I believe they do use it there. They also use it. This song's been used in a few different places, actually. Yeah, but, it's, uh, yeah. very, um, it's it's cool because I don't watch as many movies as you do, but yeah. like, this is a song that's definitely made the rounds through. Oh, it's been in so many movies. Yeah, I think it was in Gladiator actually too. It might they might have used it there. <laughs> and this Mortal Coil is basically just kind of a super group, yeah, of uh, the four AD label members at the time. So this is essentially a uh, song by uh, the band the Cocteau Twins. Mm. You'll hear it's. Uh, Elizabeth Fraser is just a crazy singer, so here's a little bit. So yeah, just like even more hauntingly evocative um, than the original, I think the way the um, the vocal is, of course, um, but also like kind of the spaciness that you get from like yeah. the uh, '80s um, production technology and stuff, where you can have like kind of icy sounding uh synth tones and like you know you can mess with echoes and stuff way more than you could back in whatever 1969 yeah so. I, I and i think that's like one of those advantages of like some of the new production techniques although there's something about that old analog sound trying to create that effect but it's uh you know especially when you hear something like that all right so you really took me for a loop on that one because i didn't know the original i you know you kind of blew me away there with the fact that i didn't even know that jeff buckley had this famous uh musician dad so i am going to try to stump you like i'm trying to think of something thematically i could take you with i'll also do a cover from the 90s of a song from the 60s a folk song from the 60s and i have a feeling that even if i play this original song you're gonna have no idea who this is and on that you're gonna bother um, making you guess who the original artist is because I'm pretty sure no one is going to figure out who this artist is because I, you know, on Spotify right now, I think they have maybe tens of thousands of listeners per month. So it's a pretty, pretty niche. I'll play you the original and then you can guess who the cover is. Once again, the cover's from the 90s and a very, very popular song from the 90s. Zephyr in the sky at night, I wonder Do your tears of morning sink beneath the sun Goddess of the universe, come quickly for the call of thunder. Oh, hell yeah. Madonna. Madonna. Yeah.
I just like the chorus, actually. That's cool. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure you've never heard that one. So I'll tell you about the story of that, which I found by listening to a different podcast, by the way. But uh, uh, an interesting story about that is that the niece of uh, the band is called Curtis Muldoon. It's not a person. It's a band, uh, two musicians. And the niece of the singer, I believe, or one of the singers. Anyway, I guess they both sing. Portmanteau. <laughs> right. The niece was basically, she's a, a vocalist too, like mostly like a kind of a studio musician. And that William yeah. Orbit did his, uh, what was it called? Strange Freight. He would have these kind of like mix albums that he put out that would just be like 40 minutes of just production samples with people singing over them, et cetera. But if you can find the audio of her singing, it's these lyrics with production that is very, very close to what came out of the Madonna recording session. So basically almost like she just heard that and, you know, changed the lyrics a little bit. And, uh, but I mean, even the production is so close to what comes out as Ray of Light. The yeah. lyrics <laughs> she preserved even the the lyric uh, the chorus lyric as well so yeah no that's um that's crazy that's really cool and the original artist uh brooks muldoon was that who they were curtis muldoon <clears throat> curtis muldoon did they have any other did they have any noteworthy hit this song wow this is how obscure they are this song has fifty thousand plays total on um uh, Spotify. Oh, they have a song called So Nice, which I don't know, uh, which has over 200,000 plays and their third most popular track has 8,000 plays. <laughs> so wow. so they are very, very obscure. But um, Very niche, yeah. No, that's crazy. That William um, Orbit Madonna collaboration I think was her strongest like later. Yeah. Uh, there's another, the other single I think off that album um, don't tell me. Oh, that was, yeah. That was, that's actually from that's actually from music, by the way, because I have it. By the oh. way, I don't know if you knew that, but or back to back. Oh well, I was gonna put it here because I'll just throw it out there because since you just thrown it out there now, Madonna. This is once again we're just gonna segue right into it. Just one trivia story to another, but Madonna's sister is married to Joe Henry. Do you know who Joe Henry is? No. So Joe Henry is another kind of folk rock performer of this, you know, of the 2000s, of the probably 90s. And actually, no, it has to be 90s, right? Because of this Madonna song. But I'm going to play you a Joe Henry song and tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Tell the wind not to blow Cause you said so Tell me love
So once again, <laughs> she she's she's good at at finding uh, uh, material, right? She's a material girl. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> no, that's funny. Okay, so the that's I think that's a really interesting thing though too that we're stumbling upon is like the first one we had um just multiple hits on al green and then now we have a madonna crisis on our hands and i think that's neat because that explains the the relationship between original to cover songs and we're picking probably some of the best interpreters of other people's songs exactly. that have ever exactly. recorded right and so that's pretty pretty neat by happens and honestly these are things that i've stumbled upon like i uh was a mild joe henry fan and then i this album came out before but i didn't hear it until afterwards basically and then i remember just hearing this song and i was like wait a second i know these lyrics <laughs> yeah so. it's, it's wild and the funny thing is too another little um bit to go back to ray of light i actually um had a uh, remix concert uh, contest for that with this digital audio workstation daw program that i have been using for ever right but they had this site where you'd be able to get like loot packs and all this stuff and they'd also host these contests and try and remix it and ray of light was one of them i have that remix that i made somewhere <laughs> i'd love to hear it this is like literally like the same year that it came out and then I was, so okay so i did too so now you get to do two. I know you. I just you just saw saw me too. I'm gonna do you a little one better. Okay. So this first uh, this cover, it reached number one in the '80s. It's a UK band uh, that basically is a straight up reggae band. UB40. Yes. The number one. Uh, well, they had all their number ones were. There's only two, right? I think can think of uh, one is Red Red Wine. Is that the one? Or yes. Okay. Funniest thing about this, which there's a great blog on Stereo Gum dedicated to the entire history of the number one hits on the Hot 100. Uh, UB40 thought they were covering, thought the original artist was a reggae artist uh, named Tony Tribe. Mm -hmm. Do you know who originally wrote? So UB40 thought they were covering this song by Tony Tribe. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that specific song, but I would have assumed it was reggae. Yeah, I mean that would be my assumption too. So, but this is a cover. Yeah. So, who are who are these people covering? So, so that's the thing, right? So, UB40, they were all covering reggae songs right. or versions of songs, and this is actually originally written. And the reggae cover is really contemporaneous cover 
because the original was uh, from Neil Diamond. What? First <laughs> my life. Wow. And then, you know, 26 years later or something like that, uh, UB40 covered it. Wow, that is so funny. I've heard the Neil Diamond version of this song, and I assumed he was doing the cover because, I mean, yes, he's obviously a songwriter. He's written many songs for many people, but he also, you know, did a lot of, you know, later on, he became one of those kind of guys who did like the songbook and everything else. So I did had yeah. no idea that this was his original. Wow, that's a real surprise. Another big surprise for me. But with time, parts of you would leave my I was wrong, and I find just one thing makes me forget red, red wine. So, yeah. I don't know. I think that's one of uh, proof positives of like how covers can subsequently really give more life to a song. Because that original, I'm like, wow, the Tony Tribe version just sounds more like energetic and less of a kind of mopey <laughs> that's for sure but the uh but i do appreciate his version and what's interesting about it listening to it is instrumentation wise it's so not reggae but now that i've heard mm. the reggae version i can't help even hearing his version and being like of course like a reggae artist could hear this song and be like oh i could turn this to a reggae song like you know just like the mm. uh the backbeat is like so reggae right although it's like you know yeah. like i said it, it, there's no way that he intended that when he was writing it right yeah so yeah that that's kind of cool because um the ub40 guys like i said they thought they were just doing all covers of reggae well they did all covers of reggae songs but the um uh, lead singer in ub40 when he saw the credit on this tony tribe record for n diamond he was like, I thought it was like some Jamaican guy. like <laughs> Right, know. exactly. Who knows a Neil Diamond? Although you Neil know, Diamond has written... Michael Diamond, you know. And this is actually to, to his credit, by the way. I'm not a big Neil Diamond fan. I kind of think he's kind of cheesy. I knew him firstly at his peak of his fame, probably like in the early 80s when I was like kind of, you know, aware of, you know, the radio. And that music was very cheesy to me. Uh, but, you know, but yeah. when you go back to his early uh, recordings, a lot of the music he wrote for other people is actually good. I just feel that as a performer, you know, and, and I don't want to disparage anybody because especially he's definitely a talented writer. But it's kind of like what I feel about the Bee Gees also, where they are definitely good songwriters, but it doesn't connect with me emotionally. And then oftentimes yeah. people will cover their music and I will love the covers of their music. It's just a matter of taste, I guess. No, I, I agree. And like the interesting thing too, like Neil Diamond is one of those dudes almost, he's from the same uh, generation and like kind of vintage as Nilsson almost. Yep. And like that songwriter, like the Brill Building yep. stuff. Yep. You have one, like Carol yep. King, yep. you know, um, and she's like a billion times more talented than Neil Diamond, in my opinion, but like, right. That's what I was going to say, actually, um, about her. She's, you know, because they, they came up together, actually, right? They even wrote some songs together, yeah. I believe. As much as I like the versions of her songs that other people did, you know, that Tapestry album is a classic because she she does great versions of those songs, her, her own versions of them. So I agree. I, I, I like her better as a performer, specifically, or connect with her more than, than a Neil Diamond, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. But they're all from the same school. Yeah. So that's the interesting yeah. thing, too. You know, you're talking about how people kind of refract their environments in different ways and how that's expressed. And it's always interesting to see which ones translate 
better or how they where their legs come from so in this song's case the original didn't do jack you know what i mean and then the tony tribe thing wasn't like some crazy song but ub40 like just picked it at the hit it at the right time like recorded that and it just uh had a reflection on what people wanted to hear at that time oddly enough so and actually just get there um, one more thing about neil diamond yeah. there's um one of the funniest will ferrell uh sketches on snl parody of the vh1 storytellers yeah, show I've seen it, yeah. with will ferrell <laughs> as neil diamond and uh john goodman's uh a bass player i think and uh tim meadows is his keyboard player yeah. and it's it just uh insane i could see why neil would probably be offended by it but at the same time <laughs> like the dark side the oversharing during his uh <laughs> he's like yeah what is he what is it the one that the worst is he uh he says he uh he, he killed, killed the hitchhiker right yeah he killed the drifter once <laughs> that's what this song is about <laughs> I want, yeah if i wrote forever in blue jeans exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh man we'll be right back Present-day Victor cutting in to just remind you to subscribe if you haven't already subscribed so you know when new episodes become available. I'm having a lot of fun in this conversation, as you can tell. And uh, love to hear feedback from you as well. So email me uh, with other ideas for music episodes, more music history you might be curious about, or some different formats we can use to explore these topics. Reach us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. The music you're hearing right now is the excellent Loki theme music which we are currently recapping loki so if you are watching or you plan to watch soon make sure to follow along with our recaps they're in the same feed we are also recapping a show called evil on paramount plus and the next episode of that will be coming out late this weekend sunday night monday morning around there so if you're starting to watch that as well or planning to watch that those will be coming out weekly as well and next week i'm trying to stick to my uh, schedule of putting out another music episode so we should have another music episode for next week ready to go and uh, can't wait to introduce you all to new music movies tv enjoy the show the next pairing i have is again kind of uh the original is one of these songwriter types and actually more known for songwriting than performing vocals anyway. Is it Leonard Cohen? <laughs> Close. I think he's referenced in uh, Austin Powers. Whoa, in Austin Powers. Oh, uh, Burt yeah. Bacharach? Yes. Okay. This is the version by the uh, 60s kind of proto-punk almost but also very psychedelic band uh from los angeles love hmm. and it's my little red book oh wow Hmm. I wasn't going to sit and cry. And I went from A to Z. I took out every 
You know what's so interesting about me hearing that? And I'm pretty sure I've heard this love version before, though. I have no, but not very familiar with it. But hearing it now, one of my favorite performers, Elvis Costello, and he's a big fan of, uh, of Baccarat. But what's interesting is I never really saw a connection between the two of them. But it's kind of funny hearing this cover, I hear Elvis Costello in Love's cover of that Burt Baccarat song. Yeah. And when you think about when you kind of like, break down that equation and it's the cadence yeah, but exactly, the, yeah. the words you know what i mean so the delivery is everything yeah. and here's the original and it's it is an interesting change of pace It's, it's interesting to hear just that last segment there that you just played because uh, that's much faster. And uh, once again, not seeing his connection to, you know, like kind of like that British blues, for example, at all. But like you hear that at the end there. And I'm thinking like I'm hearing a little bit like of the animals in there and stuff like, you know, like I, very surprising. That I would not have made that association to him being influential in that British rock scene, but he probably was. And it's very surprising. I was not not didn't would not have made that connection. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Love were um, uh, kind of a really, um, they were up there with like the Doors, it was like the craziest LA rock groups yes. in that time. And, but they refused to like tour yeah. or do anything. That's um, another Nielsen so. connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, California, well, I guess it just sucks you in. Um. All right, I'm going to call an audible here. That's what I've been doing while you were, um, uh, because you made me think of something here with the whole, is this, you know, this is not a reggae song, but this song, I'm going to, you know, walk through, this is kind of like the experiment I did at the very beginning of our very first podcast when I played that, you know, made like that playlist of all those different versions of the man next door. Um, so this is a rabbit hole I went down recently. So I'm going to play just a few versions of this song, which have been all over the place. And uh, you'll probably recognize it because it became popular eventually. It took a very long time to eventually have a popular version. And, and by the way, this is a song that I thought was a reggae song. So that's the reason I made, me, made this connection. But the first, the release of this was from The Persuaders in 1973. So here's the original version of this song, a not a reggae song. So then, almost within a year or so, it gets picked up and becomes a big hit as a reggae hit by, by Derek Harriet. But then it becomes this song by Junior Tucker.
and then it gets covered again. <laughs> And then believe it or not, it becomes a top 10 hit for Robert Palmer before he becomes a big star here in the US. But believe it or not, that song was a hit in England, but not a hit in the US. This song never made the top 10, as many versions there were, until one year later, after the Robert Palmer hit, where Rod Stewart covered Some Guys Have All the Love. Now, what's so funny is that maybe the worst version of that song is the one that finally became a hit, but <laughs> but um, it's just, I find it very interesting that it's like this song that was like, literally, if you look at reggae versions of that song, there are dozens of them. There's some girls have all the fun, some guys, like it is like for a decade, but it's like, there's only one original R&B version. It didn't be like, didn't really have long legs there. And then immediately yeah. within a year, it's covered by a reggae artist. And then it's just like, literally, you know, one reggae artist after another, after another, after another covers it for like a decade. And then Robert Palmer, who's always kind of dipping his toes into like that kind of music anyway, kind of, you yeah. know, turns it into this whatever weird, which I don't like that version at all, by the way, but it was a hit in England. And it was this whole weird electro funk version of it or whatever. And then of course, Rod Stewart, who was at one point an interesting artist, by the way, but at this point in the eighties, he's as boring an artist as you get. And he's like saying like, let's take that song that's popular in England and let's like remove any character from it at all and make the most dope. Yeah, like, yeah, wash it down even more. And then it uh, like kind of comes full circle. Although that I, I actually like that original R&B version. And then, you know, we get to like, really like the most boring version of that song. And the reason I bring this uh, particular song in is that sometimes even like a very boring kind of like as generic as you can get, uh, version of a um a cover actually there's like this rather interesting uh history behind it right even when when you get to like oh, yeah. the the eighth xerox is pretty bland but there's something <laughs> <laughs> yeah the first gen like third gen is still really vivid and cool right, right. um no yeah that's that's really interesting too and there's a weird um kind of confluence too with like uh how it was uh rod stewart and robert palmer yeah. were the last two to do that and their careers both went from really cool to like really bad <laughs> <laughs> right around the same almost on the same timeline they're just like a little bit off and he embraced but, it though so i mean i think that i mean he was he yeah he didn't, he didn't care yeah. <laughs> he was rich and he was late he in his said. career at that point so yeah, he's like 40-something, I think. You know, it's his only real moment of superstardom there. Plus, of course, the Power Station record, which was a Power big Station. hit. Yeah, exactly. Which, that uh, Playing into the covers, yes. their first big song was a T-Rex right, cover. Right. Which I hate that cover, by the way, compared to the original. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but you know what? But I was going to say that kind of what happened to Rod Stewart and happened to Robert Palmer, I feel, 
was happened to a lot of people actually. Uh, it almost happened to Robert Plant as well. Is I think it what happened was that it was that corporate music that early '80s. But uh, I think it happened to Fleetwood Mac, right? Like Fleetwood Mac had it was an interesting band that uh, even as they became massively successful, were still experimenting and everything else. And then all of a sudden, like in the early '80s, they're like, "Oh, you know, Tusk was a little too weird. Let's make you uh, like you know, let's just flatten you out and make you as bland as possible." And but at that time, it was all about like you know, this song has to get played on all radio stations and everywhere all over the country. Yeah. So everything has to be like as bland and as milk toast as possible, right? You need to have it being played through every CVS and Dwayne Reed. You can't offend anybody. It has to play on easy listening. It has to play on the rock station, like everything. Even the rock music started getting, uh, you know, the production got so flat and boring because it had to just all sound the same, right? But yeah, that very, very early phase of the 80s, like that music back in that, you know, when I was a kid, when I was very young, like that's, I think that's part of the reason that I really didn't gravitate to music until I was older music was so like what was they played on the radio was so boring like it was just so like intentionally made as non-confrontational and dull as possible i mean like yeah think of it you have like michael bolton being popular yeah and like someone as powerful like a singer as luther vandross yeah. with just like cheesiest like song and instrumentation you can yeah, get exactly it was really milquetoast era for a lot of stuff and then that's the cool thing though so you have the the real like downward pressure of like the popular what kind of like created these other splinter right. genres that became more influential in future music right, right and actually that's interesting i was just thinking about it now that's probably what was happening because at the time it just seemed like wow there's just a, suddenly a phase of boring music and you know there's the reagan era and the everything else in the margaret thatcher era in in, in huey the lewis was big. yeah huey lewis yeah exactly uh and, and i think like you know there it was a conservative time in the country but i think it wasn't just that politically everything was conservative i think it was also like it was a backlash right against like you know through the late 70s right you have the emergence of like heavy metal you have punk rock you have rap and you have disco right and like disco as you know was massively popular but was also all about subculture right it all emerged from the subcultures so everybody's like saying like you know what's happening like you know you know there are you know uh, gay people uh, you know on the tv dancing uh, to disco music there's these punk rock people who are like spitting in people's faces you know there's um you know there's heavy metal that's emerging and like there probably was like internally there was probably like a backlash people being like hold up a second like this is out of control so it's like and then you know and, and like you said i think they probably tried to tamp it down by like flattening everything out for and it lasted for a few years but then like you said yeah. before you knew it all of a sudden all these artists started to like break away and uh, and then of course once they became more popular than the bland uh, stuff that was getting played on the radio then they become the stars right all of a sudden madonna's you know uh like a virgin performance at mtv and and that's okay right and michael jackson's putting out the thriller video and prince is doing all his you know uh um cross-dressing thing in public and uh that's and uh, absolutely and, and yeah. everybody was okay with it because it was like, you know, hey, you sell 10 million records, you get to write your own rules, right? Just another uh, iteration, right? You go back and there's always pushback to, to things outside of people's comfort zones. Right. Well, two things to that point. One is I think that part of the problem back then was that they were, they were gatekeepers, right? So on the one hand, there were gatekeepers, like, you know, there's only three networks on TV. There's only a handful of really big radio stations. I mean, on the radio- they all 
Right. And then so that, so there's a rel- relatively small channels that you can actually uh, distribute your music through. And on the one hand, those gatekeepers were probably conservative, right? But on the other hand, it was probably practical at the same time, right? It's just a simple fact that like, you're not going to be a record label and say, we're going to put out this real niche thing because we're not going to spend a million dollars advertising something that no one's going to buy, right? As opposed to now where, you know, it's fine to, you know, you could have a record label uh, if you even have record labels anymore, but there are record labels out there that just curate more obscure stuff and they can survive on that. Right. And, uh, and then of course there's artists, of course, that don't even need record labels anymore. Right. Cause you can just bypass the whole uh, system now because you're, you talk directly to your fans and you may only need a hundred thousand fans to, to survive. Right. Back then it's like, you know, if you didn't sell 10 million records, you couldn't break even or something. You needed to send, sell the ten million because they loaned. Oh, you. that was that. Yeah, those contracts were crazy. But in some cases, those labels literally did need to sell that many records to break even. But it wasn't because they had spent so much money cultivating that artist. It was because you had a giant, you know, like like Tower Records owned a skyscraper and had thousands of employees. And it's like, uh, you know, you have so much overhead now. No record label <laughs> runs that way now, right? You have all your talent agent are just contractors that work from home, right? It's just like. It, it, So with all that said, did you have another? I think this might be a good pairing to uh, close out my list for this evening. I still have more, but... Yeah, as do I. You know. Um, So the original was done by someone primarily known as an actor. It's also tangentially involved in the uh, Manson murders. Oh my goodness. Primarily known as an actor. What's her name? Peggy Lipton? No. Is it Peggy Lipton? Close. Close. Hmm. I think she was, she basically, I think she was in movies with like Frank Sinatra, like that. Not Anne Margaret? No. I don't know. The artist that covered it um, is Sly Stone. Whoa. Okay. That's not going to help me, probably. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't really known for his covers. It is uh, Doris Day. Whoa, okay. Singing whatever will be, will be. Oh, wow, okay. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. From The Man Who Knew Too Much. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Who will I be pretty? Who will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. I can't wait to hear the uh, the cover. <laughs> I mean, uh, he. This is another guy I would definitely like to uh, do, like more of a Harry Nelson type episode. Yeah, yeah. Because Stone is just immeasurably uh, important, I think, to to modern music, and doesn't really get that recognition, but. This is after um, there's a riot going on, which was like the last Sly and the Family Stone album that had pretty much everybody from the core group featured on it. Um, And then this subsequent record is like Sly and like pretty much a whole new band Mm -hmm. with like two original people. And What's interesting about that group in particular is that they were at like ground zero of like the flower power, like hippie movement in San Francisco. And 
were like one of the um, most electric acts at the first Woodstock and like completely crumbled and died as the early 70s happened. Whereas like the whole hippie movement and all that was just uh, drenched by like the cynicism of, of the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's actually and, someone, uh, like you said, someone that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's actually, like you said, some an artist that definitely we should do a deeper dive on because I find that really fascinating. That whole, uh, but yeah, go into it a little bit more because I I do find that really fascinating. The whole idea that they were like so absolutely massive at such a, you know, um, like I mean, it, it's incredible how how huge they were for for a moment there, and then how quickly they flamed out. You know, it's pretty crazy. And like the also like how super progressive they were. Right. Just as as being a mixed race mixed gender band where ever it was like an ensemble approach you know what i mean but as it got later and the group kind of fell away it was just like uh i don't know the music became heavier and a little more um insular i guess um and very yeah more depressed but this is an interesting uh version of that previous song was really great i the and uh unexpected i mean i loved her like the that how low-key it is at the beginning actually it's really pretty and then like that was really surprising when they came in there in the chorus yeah yeah really great dynamics but again that's that's pretty faithful to that original song you know what i mean it's way slowed down but like kind of got the same progression and uh, yeah the theatric feel to it Oh, it's definitely recognizable. Like some of these times, like, you know, some of these songs that don't even, they're pretty unrecognizable until you get to the chorus or something. But that, like you said, is it, it's easily recognizable as the original. And, uh, but yeah, it feels, it, the feel is so different, so utterly different. All right. I'm going to play you a song. Maybe you know this one. Uh, this is a song that I did not know was a cover. And I definitely did not know the original. Uh, as a matter of fact, the original was like not even available on Spotify or whatever. I had to find like a, you know, someone like, you know, uploaded some bootleg to uh, YouTube or something. Right. So yeah. uh, anyway, I will let you know that it is, it, to be in the same genre, it is a psychedelic rocker. It is a cover and it is one of his most famous songs. And it's probably not the one you think, even if you pick the artist. So this is a Jimi Hendrix song? It's a Jimi Hendrix song. Okay. Um, so his cover is definitely more famous than the original. Dylan cover right along the Watchtower, yeah. Right. So this is so you may not get this because I did not know this was a cover, by the way, and I didn't know who he was covering, and I don't think he even knew like he was covering. He intentionally covered this band, this other band, another band from yeah. the early '60s. I'm pretty sure he didn't know who they were covering. <laughs> so, um, so the song is "Hey Joe," 
Where are you going with it? Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. So a- Hendrix was covering the birds. The birds had a popular version of Hey Joe. Um, I don't think he ever released it as a single, but I guess it was, I think it was very popular in uh, California, right? They were from California. I think it was very yeah. popular um, in California. And they were covering a California band. So here is the birds version. And then I'll go back to the source actually after that. Crosby. Hey, Joe, where are you going with that money? In your hand. Hey, Joe, where are you going with that money? In your hand. I'm going to find my woman. She's running around with some other man. Let's go downtown. Buy my blue steel 44. That's cool. That, that What was interesting. Um, that kind of uh, had the same uh, energy as the Burt Bacharach cover by Love. <laughs> right. They're both in LA at the around the same time. Uh, the Birds in Love would be, I think. And uh, and that cover, uh, the the Birds song was a cover of a band by called The Leaves. I know very very little about this band, and uh, mm-hmm. another. Uh, uh, band which apparently was influential once again in california but never really made it uh and here's the original there we go I gotta tell you, I love that's, the energy of that original song. I mean, like, that's, more, that's like the most punk. Version <laughs> that's what I was about to say. Cool. It is so punk rock, right? It's like you know, early '60s. And once again, it's like something I like stumbled upon when I was doing some of that research for like that early like proto punk. And I'm like, this is like, like yeah. you said, this is like I want to hear. Like, uh, I mean, I I would not have been surprised at all if like Nirvana had covered that version of the song at some point <laughs> in their career, right? right. Yeah, you know, and it's it's kind of interesting too. So you have kind of happening across the country, um, sim- almost simultaneously, right? Like like surf rock, yep. like heavy surf rock, and like garage yep. on the West Coast, and then like garage rock um, was basically like Midwest mm-hmm. shit, like people from. Io, you know, um, as it as we know it, I guess. Um, but those two like movements like definitely precede punk yep. by like years, yep. fifteen years, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, but are it's like I don't know, it's like a weird um manifestation of that like saying, Oh, traits skip a generation. Mm-hmm. Hey, Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? 
this is part of the reason that I honestly thought that this song was an original. And maybe I should have thought the opposite because it's so well thought out. Uh, because this song is, as you hear it, is so perfectly constructed. As he goes through the story, there's a momentum that's building, like subtly. It's like built. There's a pressure. There's a tension that's that's building, which the other songs don't have. And they're adding these elements and the, the drumming is getting more frenetic. You know, those fills are getting more, which are incredible. Those fills are incredible, by the way. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great, great song. I mean, that's like an all-time classic for sure.